0: Hello. I'm Aaron Lord.
1: And I'm Caitlin Andrzejczyk.
0: And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. We're continuing our special Women in Endocrinology series where we speak with the authors of 12 influential high-impact research papers published in Endocrine Society journals since 2017. The selections for this special series reflect a spectrum of basic through clinical research, geographical diversity, and career stage. Stay tuned.
1: In this podcast episode, I spoke with Dr. Rebecca Simmons. Dr. Simmons is the Halem, Hertz, Endowed Chair and Professor of Pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine and an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Her research focuses on the causal mechanistic links between the intrauterine milieu, and type 2 diabetes and obesity in the adults, with a focus on epigenetics and mitochondria function. Her 2018 endocrinology paper titled, Transcriptomic Analysis Reveals Novel Mechanisms Mediating Islet Dysfunction in the Intrauterine Growth-Restricted Rat, was nominated and selected for our special Women in Endocrinology collection. You can find links to this paper and the full thematic collection at www.endocrine.org slash podcast. And now, my conversation with Dr. Simmons.
2: I'd really like to hear a little bit more about why it's actually important to study intrauterine growth restriction.
3: Fetal growth restriction is a common complication of pregnancy. And we now know through many, many studies conducted both um, here in the United States as well as in other countries, and epidemiology studies and animal studies, showing a link between fetal growth restriction and the later development of type 2 diabetes and obesity later in life.
2: And so in this study, you used a rat model of this growth restriction. Can you tell me a little bit about the model that you used and what kind of limitations this
3: has? So we used a model that we developed many years ago whereby we induced fetal growth restriction by ligating both uterine arteries. And towards about the last, trimester of the rat, although rats, really don't have trimesters, but to try to mimic the human situation. In human pregnancy, fetal growth restriction is most commonly caused by utero placental insufficiency, meaning that the placenta just isn't working properly to provide nutrients and oxygen and other important growth factors to the fetus. And so, by reducing blood flow, which again occurs with utero placental insufficiency in the human, we can mimic that situation. There are many different types of animal models. There's nutrient restriction models, protein restriction, hypoxia, models in the sheep whereby you remove part of the placenta. And some of these mimic very severe malnutrition, which really does not occur to a great degree in most parts of the world, although obviously in some parts of the world it still does. And so we feel that our model more closely mimics what's going on in human pregnancy. Now, one caveat is that this is an abrupt cessation, or really an abrupt decrease in blood flow to the fetus. And in the human, where pregnancies are complicated by a reduction in blood flow, it's more almost like an oscillatory phenomenon, meaning. You'll have normal blood flow to the fetus, then you'll have abnormal blood flow to the fetus. So it's not a perfect model, but we feel like it is probably the closest model that we have to human IUGR.
2: Are there good medical treatments for women who might be having this issue during their pregnancies?
3: Unfortunately, no. And one of the most common causes of that is unless you can treat the underlying disease. So one of the most common causes is maternal hypertension both gestational hypertension or pre-existing hypertension. So if hypertension is adequately controlled, yes. But unfortunately, another common cause, preeclampsia, we have not really been able to treat that condition at all except for delivering that fetus.
2: So still quite a lot of work to be done there for women who might be suffering with these conditions.
3: Correct. And most of the time, or I wouldn't say most, but in a good percentage of the cases, we don't even really know why fetal growth restriction occurs. And so, for example, a woman will go in and have an ultrasound and the obstetrician will note that there is a decrease in fetal growth, but the mom doesn't have preeclampsia or hypertension and she's not malnourished, which we term idiopathic. And again, that's actually a fairly common cause of fetal intrauterine growth restriction. And we don't have any treatment for that. There have been, in animal models, treatments such as providing nutrients to the fetus or providing growth hormones to the fetus, such as IGS, with some improvement, but not really total resolution of that fetal growth restriction. So we, yes, we are a long ways away from developing good therapies for that. Tell me a little bit
2: more about the results then from your study. So you had these rat models where you were actually able to disrupt the blood flow, and what did you ultimately end up seeing with them?
3: The purpose of this study was really more exploratory, meaning we were trying to identify novel pathways. And We have spent the last 25 years examining islets and other target tissues such as muscle and liver, but the purpose of this study was to try to determine whether or not there were Other pathways that we had never thought of, the novel mechanisms. And the second purpose of the study was to try to determine if there was an overlap in the transcriptome, meaning was there an overlap in changes in gene expression that we see in our animal model with human type 2 diabetes, with islets from humans who have type 2 diabetes. And that really was to identify causal mechanisms because in our model we first examined the transcriptome in animals who had not yet developed hyperglycemia. So obviously, humans with type 2 diabetes already had the disease. So if we found overlap between changes in gene expression uh, early in life in our animal model that were similar to what we saw in type 2 diabetes in humans, that would suggest that those mechanisms may be causal to the disease. And so the pathways that we identified that we thought were quite novel were changes in the extracellular matrix, those are some of the most common genes that we identified to be disrupted, as well as genes controlling inflammation. So we've long known that type 2 diabetes and obesity is associated with inflammation, but that's always has been thought that is really due to hyperglycemia and the abnormal milieu of type 2 diabetes and or obesity. Yet in our animal model, we found that inflammation actually preceded the development of diabetes. So those were two important observations. And third, there was significant overlap in dysregulated genes that we identified in our rat model and with human type 2 diabetes. Suggesting again, finally, that our model is a good model of type 2 diabetes in the human. So the
2: main changes that you saw from your RNA sequencing of the fetal islets, you saw these changes in the extracellular matrix genes, you saw changes in inflammatory genes. Can you tell us a little bit more about any specific genes that came up that were perhaps surprising to you that really indicate, oh, this is a good pathway to start studying next?
3: That's a good question. We found so many changes. We found about a 1,000 to 1,500 genes were dysregulated. So it wasn't just one gene it was multiple genes. And when one does RNA-seq, because you can identify so many genes, it's really more important to look at pathways. And so a collection of genes that are disrupted. And again, what was surprising to us was our findings of many genes that were disrupted that control extracellular matrix. So that, in my mind, was the most interesting finding that we observed. So what do you do next with this information? So what we'd like to do next is determine whether or not we can actually interrupt that process. So for inflammation, we've already started to use uh, drugs that can block inflammation early in life and to determine whether or not we can reverse those changes both in the extracellular matrix as well as changes in inflammation. And that's where we're focusing our efforts right now.
2: That's fascinating. It's very interesting, and it does seem like this is a a really great model to get additional information about this disorder. And there's lots of genes, lots of pathways to continue
3: looking at, it seems. That's correct. I think there's enough work to do for my postdocs for the rest of their lives. (laughs) (laughs) That's always a good thing.
2: (laughs) I just want to switch gears a little bit. And because your paper was selected for this collection, I would really like to spend a little bit of time just talking about your own career pathway, your research experience, if there's anything you'd like to share about how you started out and how you got to where you are now.
3: I started out many years ago and during medical school and residency, I started two different research projects and they were exciting, it was exciting to do research, it was exciting to be challenged and do something in addition to learning how to be a clinician. So I continued to do research and finding that, again, there's always something new and exciting to learn, and I think probably the most important takeaway message is finding good mentors. So I was very lucky to have good mentors throughout this whole process from medical school and residency and fellowship, even throughout my career, and even now, finding good mentors is critically important. And the best part of my job is now becoming a mentor to the new generation of scientists, postdoctoral fellows, PhDs, medical students, et cetera.
2: Can you give any advice on how to actually find a good mentor?
3: You have to click with that person. And it's good to ask other people who are a little more senior to you. So for example, if you're a graduate student, you ask your other graduate students who um, have been in different labs, or if you're a postdoc. Who have they experienced um, good relationships with? And same with junior faculty. So you have to do your homework. You have to ask around who has been successful in being a mentor. And then you need to actually spend some time with that person, again, to determine whether or not you click with that person. Because not everybody is going to have a relationship with that mentor, meaning that there might be personalities that seem to uh, blend well and others that don't.
2: So is there anything that
3: I've missed that I haven't asked that you would like to share, either about your career or about the research? No, other than it's really a great job and it's really fun. And I think there are many physician scientists that feel when they're first starting out that it's a daunting process. Mm -hmm. But if one enjoys what they're doing, then they will be successful. Mm -hmm. And there are just so many interesting questions to ask. That it's such a worthy goal to pursue and a worthy career to pursue.
2: Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated this, and I, I've learned so much <laughs> during this conversation. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much.
1: What I really liked about my conversation with Dr. Simmons was learning about the novel pathways that her exploratory study in the fetal growth restricted rat model identified as being important. Specifically, changes in the extracellular matrix and in genes that regulate inflammation.
0: That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To learn more, visit www.endocrine.org slash podcast. There you can find this episode and some helpful links. You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. And if there's a topic you'd like to see us cover on the podcast, let us know by emailing us at podcast at Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.